So what got you into ghost hunting? And do you prefer Joshua or Josh? Either one is fine. I mean, uh, most people call me Joshua because that's what they see in writing. But I, I'll respond to either one just fine. <laughs> um, you know, I tell you, uh, I was fortunate, I suppose, because I was born and raised in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, which has a just a rich, rich legacy of ghost stories and folklore and Native American legends and my family has been there since the 1700s, and so I grew up hearing all of these fantastic tales. And uh, well over 30 years ago, when I was a teenager, I mean, we're talking about 1991, um, I published my first book. I always wanted to be a writer, and so I started collecting stories, and some were fiction, some were based on, you know, legends. And... Um, that took off and I started writing professionally. And so even as a teenager, I mean, by the time I was 18, I'd published three books and um, I, I became a, a well-known speaker in the region and uh, because everybody wanted to hear the stories and I'd go out and investigate things. And then uh, eventually the TV shows came calling. And so I got asked to go on the History Channel, Discovery, Travel Channel and uh, I, the more exposure I got, the more I realized, like, I might be able to actually make a living off of this, you know, for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what I've done. I, I continued uh, going down the rabbit hole, as they say. I started with ghosts. And what I discovered was that if you stick with the paranormal long enough, you eventually will find that ghosts lead to ufos and aliens and then they lead to psychic phenomena and then all that stuff leads to cryptids and then it all gets into other dimensions and as the great charles fort said you can measure a circle beginning anywhere so it, it's all connected and so i've now sort of made that circle about as fully as i can for the time being but getting back to the radio business you know because i was involved with the media as a part of presenting my research Occasionally, I would get opportunities to take on that, that host role, and uh, I started uh, hosting a radio show in my region called Speaking of Strange, which actually did very well. It was on the air for 15 years until I decided to move to Puerto Rico and, and investigate the Bermuda Triangle for five years, and so it was too complicated to continue that. Um, and then a, a little over 10 years ago, um, George Norrie and Tom Danheiser asked me if I wanted to start being a correspondent in the field where I would come onto the show every week and give a report. Um, and then that all kind of led up to, uh, I live in Las Vegas now, so things are a little easier for me in terms of, uh, access to technology. But, uh, a little over two years ago, I guess, Tom Danheiser said, you know, iHeart has decided they want to expand their programming and create this coast to coast AM paranormal podcast network. Will you be a host? And uh, I said, well, you know, it sounds wonderful. What do I talk, talk about? And he says, you can talk about whatever you want. Just don't cuss. So I figured I could live with that. And uh, so they made me an offer I could not refuse. And now it's the most listened to show on the network. And um, it comes out every week, a new episode drops every friday about noon east coast u.s time and uh it's just been a, a wonderful blessing right we have a lot to get through we might have to get you back to the bermuda triangle stuff let's start yeah. with some let's start with some ghost basics then how, how would you define a ghost how would you define an entity well you know the sort of best clinical definition that I could come up with for a ghost is a ghost is some paranormal aspect of the physical form and or mental presence that appears 
to exist apart from the original physical form. Now, that's a mouthful, but if we break it down a little bit, there are different types of ghosts. And the two main types would be what we consider entities and imprints. So an entity would be one of these ghosts that appears to be interactive and aware and unpredictable, very much like some conscious disembodied spirit that we think of in the traditional sense. However, most of the time when people see ghosts, I think that they're actually seeing an imprint. An imprint is a ghost that, that it, it may look just as, as realistic, so to speak, as an entity, but it's redundant. It's non-interactive. It is predictable. It seems to be like a recording of some kind that's trapped in the environment, that's burned in the environment, and that replays itself from time to time under certain circumstances or perhaps just for certain people. And um, if we want to look at this in the simplest way, we can just think about how a magnetic cassette tape works, whether it's audio or video. There may be some, some characteristic of our environment that is literally a recording medium. And uh, perhaps that has a connection to these stories about the Akashic Record, that there's some great library that exists out there parallel to our dimension that records all things and that it can be, all things can be accessed regardless um, of so, time. Sorry, sorry, sorry Joshua, the, the viewers are saying that we've got a clicking mic situation. Um, okay. Any, any, any adjustments we can make? Um, well, it, it's, it's literally going click, click, click. Yeah, yeah. When you're moving around, I think is the is the cable rubbing against the the little. Mouthpiece? It might be. Let me try not moving as much, and let's see. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of this is an old headset that I grabbed because I like the way it sounds, but it might be a little bit creaky. Any chance you can uh, switch headset then? Because it is it yeah. is continuing. All right, thank you. Let me cheers. Yeah, let me cheers. grab this other headset. Sure, give me just Thanks. a moment, Thanks. and we'll try this. <laughs> Creaky headset. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, viewers. Let's see how we're going. Get it fixed in a moment. If you've got any questions, there is a lot of stuff to go through. But if you've got any questions, put them in the question box. All right, let's see. Got no no audio yet. Yeah, the creaking it was getting louder, that's true. Bear with us, we should have this fixed in a minute. Um, presently, we've got no audio. Can you adjust that so we can, on your, um, on your device, I don't think it's receiving the audio. All right. Maybe, maybe, um, do a refresh, try a refresh. 
it's the input setting we think Right, so still nothing. Um, can you can you check your audio input setting? Audio input setting. I think you might have to switch it over to the new headset. It's just showing that there's. Yeah, so the, the 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 headsets have probably fixed the situation, but the audio input right now it doesn't look like it's been turned on. Um, can you refresh your screen? Try and refresh your screen. I think the gremlins, the ghostly gremlins, have got in the uh, <laughs> sabotaging sabotaging us here. Are you are you able to refresh? Refresh the screen. Well, it's been muted. It looks like you're, you're muted. Let's have a let's have a look. Um, I'm going to refresh my screen. Let's see if that does anything. Right. So. Still on silent, still silent. Um, it's been muted. Yeah, I'm not sure what's happened here. Test one, yeah. two, three. There we go. There we go. Well, now, uh, I, I can hear you, and the audio probably sounds different from me now, but it's, it's working. Perfect. Yeah, it's oh, working it? perfectly. No, no crackling. Um, the crackling was getting louder, so we we, we had to make make this change. Well, let, let, let's keep going. You were talking about ghosts and entities. <laughs> this usually happens when I get to that part. By the way. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I, I hate doing TV shows and stuff like that because everything goes wrong. I just filmed a, a program with the History Channel recently. I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, and I swear it was like it was cursed. You know, every little thing that could go wrong went wrong. But uh, okay, so essentially, though, um, the idea is that many of these ghosts seem to be some kind of a a recording that's trapped in the environment. And that that these recordings replay themselves uh, under certain conditions or for certain people. And uh, therefore, I think that many of these things that we see that we think of as ghosts are examples of us seeing this imprint that sort of burned into the environment. And that's fascinating because 
whether or not that means that we actually have some kind of um, some kind of a disembodied spirit or some kind of an afterlife, it shows us that it might be possible for us to actually tap into this layer of information, maybe using some kind of a, a camera and literally observe things that happened in the past as they really occurred. And, you know, there have been stories that such a device has been invented. Um, you know, there's a tale about some time camera being used by the Catholic Church, by the Vatican at one point. I don't know how, how much to believe of that story. But if that were possible, it would be one of the most powerful tools in all of human history because, I mean, for one thing, it would rewrite human history. It would show things in a new context. And uh, it would also give us the ability to um, possibly, you know, uh, violate privacy. I mean, what's going to happen if you take this to a motel room and Mm. scroll back uh, a few days to see what happened? So there are all kinds of, there's a big Pandora's box that could be open. But I like bringing this up because this shows you that when I go out and I'm, I'm researching ghosts and I have a laboratory and I do experiments, I am not just looking at this from a thrill seeking standpoint. I'm always thinking about the technological benefits that we could get by understanding this ghostly phenomenon and all of the many different forms that uh, it seems to take. Would you say then that the trauma of horrific fatalities would leave such imprints, you know, horrific deaths, uh, death penalty chambers? Are you more likely to detect something around those circumstances? Absolutely. Um, A lot of the research that I did early on was dealing with um, the human bioenergy field and also biofeedback devices. And, you know, every single person is creating a measurable electromagnetic and electrostatic field. And it changes. It, It changes based upon a lot of different factors. But one of them is the emotional state of the person. And so when you have someone who is in a highly excited state, whether it's good or bad, I think that it's going to create a stronger signature in the environment. And that's one of the reasons that uh, here in Las Vegas, where I live now, you have so much ghostly activity because there are such highs and such lows here. I mean, you have people who come here and they win big, or they go out and have the best party of their lives, or the opposite happens, and they lose, and they they destroy their lives, they commit suicide. You've got you know crime from the mobsters, and and as a matter of fact, Nevada in general. I mean, it was founded on Halloween Day, October thirty first of, I believe it was eighteen sixty four, right in the middle of the Civil War. So they called it the Battle Born State. And uh, it was one of the most violent states in the Old West because of all these miners fighting over mining claims and stuff. And um, you find that often a a really haunted place seems to consist of a a combination of geological factors, atmospheric factors, and drama, uh, organic drama. So let's look at, again, Las Vegas as a good example of that. Las Vegas is, or, 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 or Nevada as, as a good example in general. Um, 
it's known as the silver state because there's obviously a ton of silver here, but it's also the number one producer of gold in, well, in North America. I think it's number four in the entire world. So this ground is just absolutely uh, just, it's full of these veins of highly conductive minerals, okay? things that conduct electricity very, very well. And so what you find is there are all these weird sort of natural pulsing electromagnetic fields that are, that are just part of the telluric currents that are passing through the earth around here. On top of that, you have this very, very dry, harsh climate with these strong winds that go blowing through. And that builds up a lot of electrostatic charge, and it allows some of these electrical fields from the earth to become more easily expressed. It's almost like when you go through a dry period of the winter when you rub your socks on the carpet and you touch a doorknob and get a shock. So it's a very electrically dynamic environment. And we know that whatever ghostly activity is, it's associated with some kind of an electrical power supply in the environment. We find these anomalies all the time. You add the layer of human drama on top of that, as I mentioned, with the mobsters, with the wars, uh, with a lot of the strange experimentation that happens here regarding the military and, and otherwise, uh, it, should, it creates the perfect scenario for what they call the Nevada Triangle, which runs from Las Vegas up to Reno and then actually over to Fresno, California. And I thought the Bermuda Triangle was active, but there's more stuff that actually happens here in the Nevada Triangle. Yeah, having been in the Sonora Desert and the Mojave Desert, those electrical storms, the dust devils and the dust storms, Absolutely breathtaking. Okay, so what's the relevance of auras? Well, you know, it really goes back to what I was saying about this field of energy that all living things have around them. And we do have technology to to measure that to, to a certain extent. However, um, you can train your eyes to be able to see that in some cases and to actually see certain colors within that aura that you can use to interpret uh, things about that person's personality or mood. Um, I myself, am, I guess I'm kind of lucky because I have a natural propensity to see auras uh, to such an extent that it doesn't even seem paranormal or weird to me. Uh, in fact, when I was a little kid, my mom took me to the eye doctor when I started telling her I was seeing an aura because she thought maybe I had a, an eye problem. And my eyes are fine. And so, but I wasn't really seeing colors so much. I had to practice that more. What I would see when I was a kid, I start seeing like this, um, it's just like a little hazy layer of light around different uh, people, animals, and plants, and bigger around some people than others. And when I would be in school, I was always amazed because sometimes I would just look up and one of my teachers would just be beaming. And, and that's one of the times I started seeing colors. Uh, because blue and red were especially prominent. And over time, I started training my eyes. And, um, and now I can use that ability uh, frequently in order to try to determine something about a person. In fact, I did an experiment one time, Sean, with a buddy of mine named Casey Fox. And he, he sees auras even more strongly than I do. And um, we actually put up a blinder, a big blinder across a room. And we would have a person stand on the side of the blinder opposite Casey and Casey could tell us the position the person was standing in by seeing his or her aura extend over the top of the blinder.
When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Koro are amazing. I have them on my cheese on toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. I don't... Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. That was a really interesting objective test to show us that there's some reality there. But I will tell you as a side note that uh, I actually invented a pair of, I, I call them visors, that will basically help you start seeing the aura within... I think within five minutes, just about everybody can see the aura if you use these certain exercises. And I could have sold these, but instead I just give away the design for free because they're pretty simple to make at home. And uh, if you go to joshuapwarren.com, there is a little place where you can sign up for my free e-newsletter. And you just put your email address there and hit submit. And when you do that, you get an automated email from me. And it's got links to some really cool free stuff. And that's one of them, the instructions on how to make your own aura visor. But uh, I definitely feel like that, um, you know, we're, we're simply seeing this field of energy that's around living things. And some people can see it a little more clearly. Yeah, I've, had, I've got a few female friends who can see auras. And they're, you know, really good judges of people. Um, Jake's yeah. asked. Jake's asked about Curlian photography. Is that yeah. relevant to this? It is. Um, I have taken thousands of Curlian photographs, and you know the Curlian method. It really originated, I suppose, in the 1950s in Russia or thereabouts. And the idea behind Curlian photography is that you take whatever your subject is. It could be an object. It's very commonly something like a person's hand. And you electrify it. You run a current through it. And as you do that, the subject, let's, let's just stick with the hand for the sake of example. The hand is placed directly on a photographic plate within a dark environment, like a loading sleeve or something like that. So what happens is when you, you hit the button and you send that split-second pulse of electricity through that person's body, then um, you get... A coronal discharge. It's literally like an electric um, imprint of the person's hand. Uh, and what you're really seeing is the way that energy has flowed through that person and, and has been captured on that plate. And one of the reasons this is interesting when it comes to ghost research is that um, some of the early scientists in the 50s, they were taking something uh, simple like a leaf and they would make a Kirlian photograph of a leaf, and you would see that nice little halo of light, that corona of electricity all around it. And then they would tear a section of the leaf off and photograph it a second time. And even though that section was torn away physically, it appeared to still exist 
energetically. You could see the missing portion in the electrical image. This is called the phantom leaf phenomenon. And it may be similar to the phantom limb phenomenon that people report when somebody gets an arm or a leg cut off. Sometimes they can feel that limb for a long time. Now, here's the thing. I tried over and over and over to, to replicate that. And I was never successful. So I don't know if I didn't have the settings exactly like they were in Russia. I mean, the, that was kind of a mysterious uh, time when people were keeping a lot of that research even more uh, protected because of the Cold War. But I did get another experiment that was similar to that that was pretty mind-boggling. Um, would you like to hear about that? Or Absolutely, yes. Okay. No, please do. So, so I hope I can explain this well enough because it's kind of hard to to describe something so visual, um, but let's try. Okay, so um, I, there are actually a couple of experiments that I did that were really interesting, but this is the one that's probably most relevant. Okay, so I took a leaf in my laboratory. I was with a, a friend of mine, a researcher named Robert McGee, and um, – we took the leaf and we made a decision, Robert, uh, I'm going to put this leaf here and turn out the lights because you have to do this in the dark. And I'm going to expose it with the Kirlian camera. Okay, we're going to get a Kirlian image. And then you take these scissors and you cut that leaf and uh, kind of practice it because we're doing this in the dark, you know. And then he was going to cut that leaf, and then I was going to put it back down there and expose it again to try to get the phantom leaf phenomena. So we had it all worked out, and we went through this process. And the weird thing is we didn't get the phantom leaf phenomenon as we were hoping. But in that first picture that we took of the complete leaf, the section of the leaf was missing where we had planned to cut it. So it was as if the fact that we had this, we'd made this decision that that's where the cut was going to be somehow affected the outcome of this leaf being photographed. I know that's really weird, but does that make sense? Wow. It's like the intention, isn't it? <laughs> being the, the energetic intention. I suppose, yeah. The, the and, and I did find that, you know, there were times where I would hook plants up to what are basically like lie detector machines, you know, biofeedback machines. And, um, and so if you just talked about burning a plant or, or you said threatening things to it, you could see a reaction there. And I know that, um, you know, primary perception was, uh, was one thing that was, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name right now off the top of my head of the, the scientist who, who pioneered that concept. But uh, yeah, plants, I think, are far more aware of their surroundings than, than we think they are. My name, Cleve, Cleve Baxter. Yeah, Cleve Baxter is the name. Sorry. Can you tell us about telekinesis, Joshua? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, telekinesis is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a concept that I believe is probably 
much more exciting in fantasy than it would be in reality. Of course, you know, the idea behind telekinesis is that you can sort of be like a Jedi in Star Wars and, you know, you can stick out your hand and you can make an object fly across the room like your lightsaber and snap into your hand. And we'd probably just do that with a with a beer coming out of the fridge in real life. But <laughs> nonetheless, you know, it's there's this idea like, oh, how exciting that would be to just be able to move objects around you. Um, the bad part would be, however, uh, what happens when you're stuck in traffic and you look over at the guy next to you, you go, and you give him the old Darth Vader throat crunch, right? You might, you might be surprised how easily you would abuse that. And so I think that uh, telekinesis, the ability to move things, it does exist, but it doesn't happen immediately. Uh, in fact, the very f- the, the fact that you can move your body may be an example of telekinesis, because you know f- physicists to this day are very perplexed by the idea that we have this this idea that for every action there's an opposite but equal reaction. You know, Newtonian physics. But when you take half of that away and you just end up with this, we don't understand that. When I just think I want my arm to move and it moves. How is that happening? Where is the physical force that's acting on that? We can't explain that. So just being able to manipulate your body is almost like a form of, uh, of telekinesis um, or psychokinesis. But beyond that, you can start slowly experimenting with extending this ability. Um, there are all kinds of simple methods. You can make different types of pinwheels that you can practice spinning. There are even some professional models out there that will allow you to actually keep track of how often you're able to spin it. And if you practice that, you will be able to get it to work. I spent about um, probably over a month practicing at least 30 minutes a day. And I got to where I could spin a pinwheel under a, a glass jar. And it was sealed well enough that I could take a hairdryer and blow a hairdryer on it and it wouldn't move, but I could sit there and focus and get it to spin. So you can do that. Um, some people, they like to make flower petals float around in a, in a bowl of water or manipulate the smoke rising up off the candle. So I think that you can extend this ability to a certain extent and, and you might even be able to connect with weather systems. If you ever, tried staring at a cloud and a cloud busting it with your eyes. I mean, it's, it's interesting if you think about it, the human body is mainly made of water and empty space. And so um, if, as a matter of fact, if you squeezed all the water and empty space out of a person, what was left would be about the size of a pea. And if you look up at the sky, what are these clouds? They're just water. And since you're water and the clouds are water, Maybe we're able to connect some sometimes and, and literally manipulate clouds, manipulate weather. So there are different examples of us being able to extend the power of the mind outside of the limits of the body alone. Um, I don't think that I've ever seen proof of anything quite like we get from the Star Wars movies. Um, but I did actually, uh, I wrote a book that came out in 2015. It's a Star Wars oriented book. It's called Use the Force. A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction, because I use the Star Wars um, symbology as uh, as a reference, and I talk a lot about these concepts in here. That you know what you're trying to do when you manifest anything in your life is it's all a form of 
telekinesis in a way of extending your desires out into the world. And I think that uh, some things are more sensitive than others, like that leaf uh, that I was telling you about. It was obviously sensitive to, like you said, what our intention was going to be. So I've taken certain drugs, hallucinogenics, ecstasy, where I thought I could read people's minds or at least feel empathogenically the states, how they were feeling. And also I've been with people who we've had thoughts, simultaneous thoughts. Is that um, telepathy, mind reading, synchronicity? What, what are your thoughts on those? Well, um, yeah, you I mean, whether or not drugs are involved, um, there certainly are many, many examples of um, telepathy that you can you can test pretty easily. I mean, here in Las Vegas, I view myself as as living in a giant laboratory. And because, you know, it's like if you go to some science lab, and you're trying to test for psychic ability, they may have all these stringent parameters, but they don't really have a vested interest in the outcome necessarily. Here in Las Vegas, that's a different ballgame, okay? For one thing, all these casinos are trying everything they can to control the situation, and they're, they're, they don't believe in psychic stuff, you know. They're just using math and, and science, trying to make sure that they control how much you win or lose. Um, but you go in there and you now you have a, a very deeply vested interest in how this turns out. So if you could beat the odds in Las Vegas on a consistent basis, that's some pretty good proof of, of psychic power. And so I have done a number of events out here and we have psychic games where you'll take um, two people and I've done it with people who know each other, or I'll take two strangers out of the audience and I'll say, okay, we're going to play a little game here. So you guys are going to sit with your backs to each other. So you can't see each other. And um, I give one of them, a deck of Zener cards uh, or ESP cards. The Like, for example, one card will have a star, one will have a square, one will have a triangle, one will have wavy lines. And we try to see if one person can send this symbol to the other person telepathically, okay? And there's a certain way of, of working out what the odds should be with that. Or you could do something even simpler, just take a quarter and say, is it heads or tails? Or even treat it like, Take a deck of playing cards. Is it a red card or a black card? Almost like a roulette wheel. And what you find is that usually when you do that, the result is kind of what you would think of as being, you know, average statistically. Then I would say, now we're going to change the game a little bit. We're going to do the exact same thing, except this time, if you get X amount right, you're going to get $100. Well, now suddenly everybody sits up a little bit straighter and something changes in the demeanor. And again and again and again, they score higher every single time you put money in there as a motivating factor because now they have a reason to perform. You have got this psychic instinct inside of you to help you survive, just like any other sense that you have. But it doesn't kick in until you need it to survive you don't just use it for fun necessarily i mean i guess in some cases you might but when you but you, if, 
right now we view money as uh, as a survival tool because that's how we define achieving and receiving the things that we need to live. And so I have seen again and again and again that telepathy is real, um, but it needs you need some motivation in order to make it effective. All right. Why do entities stick around and how can you get rid of them? So when it comes to an entity, you have to think first off about what it would be like to be that entity. We hear a lot of stories, probably more than any other, about people who um, are negative. They're like mean ghosts, mean old dreary spirits, right? Some kind of negative story. Now think about this. If a person who actually has been an unpleasant person uh, dies, and then if that person dies and has a guilty conscience, it doesn't matter whether or not there actually is some God waiting there on the other side at the end of some tunnel to judge you. If you believe there might be, then you might want to delay that meeting for as long as possible. So in other words, if you have the option of moving on to this state of judgment, you might not say, you might be like, I'm not ready for that yet. And you might be motivated, if you can, to stick around a little bit longer. Uh, you also may have people who are just sad, you know, examples, people who commit suicide. And they think, I don't know if that was right or wrong. Am I going to go to hell for doing that, you know? And they, same scenario. You also have cases of people who may just literally be confused and not realize that they have to do something to move on to another state. Uh, children, for example, who may not even understand what death is, or especially uh, people who die in wartime situations, for example, like the American Civil War. You know, when these guys were out there firing off cannons every all over the place, all around, you, you the guys were so disoriented. They couldn't see because the air was full of smoke. Their ears were ringing. Half the time, they didn't know if they were fighting the enemy or their own people. It, it's chaos. It's confusion. And I think there are a lot of examples of, of times when people die in a very confusing situation. And we don't know if time passes at the same rate for them as it does for us. That's, that's another question. Maybe 100 years to us has been five minutes to, to them. Um these are all reasons that, that an entity might not take a step to move on. Now, of course, if there is a process where you die and then you just get sucked into a big vacuum cleaner and taken to where you need to be, I guess none of that matters. But if you do have to participate in the process of traveling to the next state, then that would give you the option of possibly uh, delaying that sticking around a little bit longer, or maybe even being attached to something superficial like a treasure or a person, or, you know, I built that house. That's my house. Nobody else is going to live in that house. But you know, there are all kinds of reasons somebody might be uh, too attached to this material world. How many types of entities are there? And how should one, like, get rid of them if they encounter them? So when it comes to getting rid of an entity, um, this is a very interesting and complex 
sort of area of research. For one thing, um, we can look at it two different ways. The simplest thing to do is to try to change the physical environment. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. So that even if the entity is still there, it is not able to appear and interact with you or interfere with you in any way. So here's what I mean by that. When I first started experimenting with taking things people had told me about when they had ghostly encounters and transferring them into an experimental lab setting, I realized right off the bat that many of the things people describe when seeing a ghost are things that can be reproduced artificially in the lab using electrostatic charges. So what I mean is you can take something like a Van de Graaff generator or a Wim Schurst machine. And like a Van de Graaff is like the silver ball that a kid in a high school science demo might put his or her hands on and hair stands on it. So, um, and that's one thing that people talk about. People say, when I see a ghost, my hair stands on it, you know? So we got that one covered. Secondly, um, especially in a darker environment, you can create three-dimensional light forms using electrostatic charges, just like these coronal plasmas, like St. Elmo's fire. Um, You can move inanimate objects easily with electrostatic charges. I used to take pens, pencils, cigarettes, ping pong balls, whatever lightweight stuff, and you put it down on a table and you can just hook a wand to an electrostatic generator and move it right around. And you can take that same wand and you can point it towards somebody, maybe that person's back, and it feels like there's an icy hand touching you on your back. We call that an ion wind. And people describe that ion wind on their neck and and that kind of shudder that they get when they come into contact with these ghosts. And so I started thinking, well, this is interesting that so much of this stuff can be reproduced artificially. And then I would go out to a supposedly haunted house. And I would say, don't tell me where the ghost is. Let me see if I can figure it out. And I'd walk around the house and I would start measuring, among other things, but especially the electrostatic charge that was building up in a room. And the room that had the highest electrostatic charge would almost always be the most haunted room. 
And I realized that there is a connection here. The connection is I'm not suggesting that, okay, this room is building up charges and people are misinterpreting those charges as ghosts, even though that can sometimes happen. Instead, I think that a ghost or a spirit is naturally invisible and immaterial. And so in order for it to manifest and interact with us, there must be some medium that it's able to use in order to create a temporary corporeal form. And in fact, uh, remember like the invisible man, you can't see him because he's invisible. So what does he do? He wraps himself with bandages. And so now you're not really seeing him, but you're seeing a physical representation of him. You can do the same thing with a magnet. You know, a magnet has these invisible lines of force around it. You can't see them, but you sprinkle some iron filings on a piece of paper and hold it over top of it. And boom, now you can see what those lines look like. So you may have a ghost or a spirit of some kind in a room all the time, but it's not able to materialize because the conditions aren't right. But if there is enough uh, surplus electrostatic charge in that room, then the ghost might somehow be able to make use of that energy. Or it may be that that energy automatically sort of adheres to the form of the ghost, that it's something the ghost doesn't have any control over, and that the ghost is now finding itself able to interact in this new way. And so if you want to prevent a ghost from being able to interact and materialize, one of the easiest things to do is to run a humidifier and uh, make sure that it's hard for electrostatic charges to build up. Another thing I found is, and then this is a whole different conversation, but two mirrors facing each other tends to enhance paranormal activity. Make sure you don't have any mirrors facing each other in the room. Uh, anything you can do to change the electrical environment, moving appliances around, or sprinkling even any kind of crystals, even salt around. And that sounds really silly and superstitious, but think about it. A crystal manipulates energy. That's what it is. It is it's called, a, scientifically, we call it a transducer. When you add electricity to a crystal, it vibrates. And when you squeeze a crystal, it produces electricity. And we use this all the time back in the old days in broadcasting with crystal radios. And even nowadays, look, what is all of our technology based upon? You know, it's based upon Silicon Valley. It's silicon. It's all, it's all crystals. And so um, sprinkling crystalline substances around can also change the, the electrical environment. So there are physical things like that that you can do, which I talk about in my book, How to Hunt Ghosts. But if you want to go one step deeper, if you want, you want to try to like communicate with this spirit, well, then that takes a little bit of psychology because sometimes you can simply think of, of the spirit as not being the spirit of a dead person, but just a person. What would you say to a person to get them to leave? Um, first off, you have to make them known, uh, make it known that you're not welcome here. You have to just be, sometimes that's all you have to do is say, this is my house. This is my space. You're not welcome here. Leave. And often that'll take care of it. If you find out that the person who died was of a certain faith, it can be very helpful to bring a minister in from that faith and have that minister go through some rituals that would have some meaning. So it varies a lot on a case-per-case -case basis, but those are some of the 
the two most basic approaches that you would take, changing the physical environment and learning how to address the, the personality of what you think might still be there. That's fascinating, especially what you said about the two mirrors facing each other. So what about Ouija boards? Can they affect these energies? Well, you know, Ouija board is really a type of dowsing tool. And, uh, and of course, a dowsing tool is any kind of tool that you use that helps you to tap in to your own latent ability to connect psychically with the environment. So in other words, you know, you have people who have like a pendulum, for example, and they'll use that pendulum to see if it can swing in a certain way to indicate some some uh, information that they're looking for. I don't think that that pendulum is actually responding to any kind of external energy that's acting upon it. I think that this person may already have some kind of psychic ability, and this causes very small reactions to occur in the muscles of the finger, which are just exaggerated by the swinging of the pendulum. In fact, this process uh, called automatism can be demonstrated by taking a pendulum. And if you, if you just don't even try, but you take a pendulum and you just envision it swinging left to right or back and forth or clockwise or counterclockwise, it'll start doing it just because you're envisioning it. But all dowsing tools, they are, uh, they're things to, they're almost like biofeedback devices that allow you to, uh, to see something happening within the person. Now, Ouija board is a particularly precarious form of dowsing because you have two people there and in some cases they're kind of working against each other. And I had an experimental session one time that this is when I was in Asheville and um, at, for a while I had a museum there until it got flooded. Uh, we would do, do experiments in the museum and there was a couple in the area that were, were well known for being really good working together on Ouija boards. And so I, I invited them over and I gave them some questions and I was getting all these very detailed, eloquent answers from the Ouija board. And then I said, okay, now let's do another experiment. And this time I, uh, I blindfolded them and asked them to do the same thing. And all of a sudden the Ouija board began to speak gibberish. And so to me, that made it pretty clear that there was not some force that was dragging that planchette around to help communicate. Uh, they, Whether or not this was tapping into some unknown information, they had to be aware participants in this process in order for it to work. So I don't think that there's anything inherently powerful about a Ouija board. I think it is a tool that can be used, and sometimes it, the people who are using it, are they use it to, to tap into profound information. But it's inconsistent. It's one of the more unreliable methods because you have two people there who are possibly fighting each other subliminally. But, um, but the, I don't fear Ouija boards or anything like that. Got a question from one of the viewers here from Iron Man has asked for your take on Alistair Crowley and demons. Hmm. Well, um, let's just start with demons. 
So, uh, you know, when I started doing this kind of research, I had a lot, a lot of questions about the reality of demons because I've never seen, I mean, I've seen ghosts, but I've never seen what I thought was a demon. But then I thought, well, what does a demon look like? You know, because we think of it looking like a little gremlin with the forked tail and the wings or the horns and all. And I thought, well, maybe that's just not what they look like. And so I, I started taking a more realistic approach to, to studying demons and, um, and people who believe they, they were being possessed by demons. I observed exorcisms and that's a pretty scary process. Actually, it's disturbing when you see somebody exercise and they start speaking in this very disturbing voice and, uh, saying things that don't make sense. But, um, what I found was that, uh, I, okay. If they're, let me put it this way. Scientifically speaking, there is nothing to suggest that life must exist exclusively at this particular frequency that you and I are at right now. Um, what we we have this thing called the physical world, which is a relative thing because two things are physical to each other if they resonate within the same frequency range. But there are frequencies all around us that are real, but they're not physical. Look at radio waves. I mean, radio waves pass right through you because they're so different than we are. But if, if you were made of a radio wave, then you would slam into a radio wave like a wall. You couldn't pass through each other. So I believe there are life forms all around us that resonate at frequencies that are unlike our own. And some of those life forms are uh, friendlies and some of them feed on us like parasites. So these beings that are around us sometimes that don't have our best interest at heart are what we would consider demonic beings. They may not necessarily hate us any more than you hate a pig when you have pork or any more than you hate a cow when you eat steak. They're just a source of food. And, you know, we have to eat food by taking something and, you know, you put it in your mouth and you chew it up and you swallow it. And it's, it's a pretty crude process. There may be other life forms that can just absorb things more directly from you, almost like a plant absorbing sunlight. <laughs> and that sometimes these parasites, they attach to a person. And some people are easier to feed upon than others because they put themselves in a certain physiological state, which could be by using uh, drugs or it could be by simply uh, being around influences that weaken the mind and body. Um and some people are, are better targets for this. And then once these beings, they latch on, they start drawing your life energy. And when they do that, well, then you start literally withering and you become an, an irritable, depressed, unhealthy, eventually suicidal kind of person because you feel so horrible. And then if, if nothing happens to stop it, then eventually it will kill you. So that's what a demon is, in my opinion. Now, as far as Aleister Crowley is concerned, certainly a fascinating guy. I, I've read a lot about him, and I've read many of his books. And I think that uh, he was right. He was right about his point of view on what's going on here, magically speaking. But 
I don't agree with how he conducted his his life. Um, I think that he was always just looking for the most extreme experiences. Uh, and life is sort of uh, partly about finding moderation. <laughs> you know, they say all things with moderation. I think he went too extreme in one direction. And, um, and I think he was pretty miserable at the end of his life because of it. So, I mean, um, he knew what he was talking about. And I have no doubt that he probably did uh, create experiences where he saw things that we'll never see. But um, I wouldn't recommend that anybody follow in his footsteps. Wow, this has been absolutely riveting, Joshua. I've had goosebumps from these things that you've been telling me and the viewers have been blown away as well. We've run out of time. There's so much more we could have covered. We have run out of time. You've been so kind. Can you just tell the viewers where they can find you and support you, please? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, go to joshuapwarren.com. And as a matter of fact, I have a discount code I'll show you real quick. I have a curiosity shop there, and it's got some really interesting stuff in it that you will not find anywhere else in the world. This discount code does not work for everything, but it works for a lot of the stuff. So uh, just go check out that curiosity shop. Some of the things in the curiosity shop uh, – is that showing up the right way or is it backwards? Yep, it's showing up the right way. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, joshuapwarren.com. I actually invent certain strange metaphysical and experimental devices that you'll only find there. So uh, go there. And then if you like my podcast, well, just go to strangethingsshow.com and you can discover my podcast there. And I also have a YouTube channel as well. Oh, thanks, Joshua. You have a great rest of your day. Take care, my friend. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Cheers. Bye. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made, Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug-smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made use paid learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop, emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi Campbell? (laughs) Latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated 
If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.